Amen. The great equalizer. What a joy it is to come together as God's church, brothers and sisters, praying for his church throughout the world, our brothers and sisters, looking to his word together. As we turn our attention to Acts 21 and dismiss the kids through fourth grade for the classes that are ready for them. Acts 21, that's where we are this morning. And I'll pose the question, because I know you all attentively listened last week and then put all that into practice, because it's what we all do really well with sermons, right? So what's your mission? What's your mission? Okay, I'm going to ask that tongue-in-cheek, because I realize, you know, I don't think I really thought much about, I did a little bit, and I have a, a mission for my life, but I didn't put a bunch of extra thought and time into that this last week. But as I'm preparing for this, it's like, well, that's important. And it ought to be a continuing thing. It ought to continue to come up again and again in your own heart before the Lord. What's, what's the mission, God, that you've placed before me? If you weren't here last week, you're like, what's he talking about? Go online, listen to the sermon that Pastor Chuck gave from Acts 20, where we see Paul's mission so clearly articulated. Or go grab a copy out on the Welcome Center and listen to that. And then put it together with what we see today as that mission continues and consider what's, what is it that the Lord is calling me to do? How is he calling me to live? How is he calling me to use the life that I have for him to make him known? In one sense, we're all called to a distinct mission within the greater work that the Lord is doing in the world. Every one of us has different gifts, different abilities, different, different places the Lord's placed us so the mission is different. But in another sense, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your mission is to take up your cross and follow him. That's what Jesus called us to in Luke 9, right? Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, that is to follow Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Paul, who did this, who lived his life this way, said it, in his letter to the Galatians, he said it this way, I've been crucified with Christ, so now it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives through me. In me and through me, Christ is seen. That's what it is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's allowing his life to become your life as he lives through you. And so we're going to see that continue to happen as we observe Paul on his mission here in Acts 21. And as we look at that, we'll see that Paul is unswerving as, as he pursues that mission. He's unswerving. And that's because Paul knew the truth that when Christ's mission becomes your mission, you're able to gain a sense of focus that you didn't have before. When Christ's mission becomes your mission, you gain focus. Focus on what? Focus on where and why. Questions that maybe someone has asked at some point in this room. God, where, where am I supposed to go with my life? Where are you taking me? Where, where is this whole thing heading? And why? Has anybody asked that question? God brings clarity to those things for us, and we're going to see some of that even today. Ultimately, ultimately, the where is we're, we're following Jesus, we're pursuing Christ in this life until the day when we, we achieve glorification, when we are with Christ in his presence forever. That's the where, isn't it? 
And the why is to bring him glory now, to make him known now. That's why you're on the mission that you're on. And if, if you're not seeing that happen, that this is the place where our mission may need to be recalibrated so that that why comes into focus, to make Christ known through my life, wherever he's placed me. As we saw in that video, if it's picking up garbage or cleaning sewers in Pakistan, or it's in the place where you live, where you work, where you go to school, if you're on your mission, God's gonna be known through you wherever that is. So we're gonna consider that in a greater way today as we look into this text. God, I pray that you do that. I pray that as we continue now, as we read your words inspiring, uh, inspired, written by human authors, but inspired by you, God, uh, I pray that it would be your, your spirit who would work in our hearts to apply this stuff. That it would be your mission, not something that we impose on ourselves, not something that we fabricate, but it would be the thing that you place on our hearts. It says, this is from you. It's driven forward by you to make you known. I pray you do that this morning and this time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 21, there's several segments. This is broken pretty clearly up into. So we're going to handle each segment. They, there is some overlap between them and things that happen, but there's some independent lessons in each one. So we'll look at them one at a time. The first one shows us in verse 1 through 16 that Paul has set his face toward Jerusalem. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, "'Thus says the Holy Spirit.'" This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So again, we see Paul picking up in the midst of a journey that he's already been on, and, and so because not all of us have this visual in our heads as I'm reading that of things happening, we got a map, and I've been entrusted with the sword. So if you don't if you're watching online and can't see the map, uh, the, the pointer, I'm pointing right in the middle here. This is, this is Rhodes, and directly north of it is Miletus. So he's, he's making this little trip down here. 
Um, and starting in Miletus, that's where we're picking up, okay? So you got that frame of reference in your head. He was meeting with the Ephesian elders in Miletus at the end of Acts 20. And there, there's this encouragement going on. They're building each other up, and we're told that he, he has to tear himself away from this group. That's the language in, in Acts 21 here at the beginning. Tears himself away from them because he's going to Jerusalem. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, and he wants to be there by, by Pentecost, by Shavuot to participate in, in, in the festival there. And so he's, he's set his face to Jerusalem, and he, as, as travel happens in those days, they did a lot of day trips because they followed the currents and the winds, and they, had to, they were at the mercy, basically, of weather, as, in a sense, we still are, but not entirely. Where's Mike? I don't know, whatever. But, um, and so then we see them taking a long, a long haul across the sea to Tyre. Whoa, there's a light on this. I don't use this often enough. And uh, Tyre is where we're ending up at one point, and he's meeting with the church and strengthening them and building them up, and they're encouraging him. And while they're in Tyre, through the Spirit, they, they encouraged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, we're told. Okay, that's a wrinkle in the plan, isn't it? And we're going to leave that there for a second because he's going to continue. After seven days, they unloaded the cargo from the ship, and he had to continue on. And regardless of what they said, he continued on his journey. So the last little leg of the, you don't need this anymore because you can see it there, the last little leg to Jerusalem. And he uh, is on his way there, and they stop in Caesarea, the house of Philip. Philip, the evangelist. Philip from Acts 6 had been one of the seven men who'd been chosen as a leader in the church to help with some, some extra things that were going on so that the, the 12 apostles could stay committed to, to, the, to, to the word of God and, and to prayer and to, to building up and to leading the church. And so these men, full of the Spirit, were chosen to, to, to help, to serve, to lead. And Philip was one of them, and Stephen was another. And you may remember this guy because Stephen was martyred for his faith in Christ as he explained the truth of the gospel, the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish promises in Christ as the Messiah, the response was that he was put to death. And that response was spearheaded by a, a group of people, including Saul. Saul, now Paul, who is staying in his house in Caesarea. And you go back a couple pages or a couple verses and in Tyre, we saw them with the church in Tyre. Tyre would have been a place where the church would have sprung up as a result of people leaving Jerusalem through that dispersion. So because of the persecution that Paul was bringing on the church, Paul, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, now these churches have sprung up. Now there's a church in Tyre. So Paul, listen, Paul is stopping in, in Tyre to visit the church that's there because of the persecution that he brought. Now he's stopping in Caesarea to stay with Philip, who was one of the seven that felt the persecution very strongly. And they're, there's, they're coming under the same roof, roof or on the same table because of what Pastor David was talking about at the communion table. Because now in Christ, the ground is level. And we, are, we who were once enemies are now brothers and sisters. There's this great unifying factor that comes and that's something we don't want to miss as we see Paul in these travels. But something else that emerges. We see th this question come up. What's, this, what's going on as the Spirit, through 
this group in, in Tyre is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And now in Philip's house, here comes Agabus, who enacts this prophecy and explains pretty clearly, Paul, you're in for it. The Spirit said so. What's Paul supposed to do with that? Because he's on a mission, right? Did he misunderstand what the Spirit was leading him to do? We have to back up for a minute and consider the, the, the mission that Paul's on. It's clear that the Spirit is the one who is directing his mission. The Spirit is directing the mission. Think about it. When, Christ, when Jesus Christ grabbed a hold of Paul's life on the road to Damascus, Saul, before he became Paul, changed his heart, changed his life. And one of the things that was spoken of about Paul now in this new calling, Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How do you like that, kicking off your mission? And then more recently, back in Acts 20, right before Paul explains his mission to these elders, these Ephesian elders, in Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Does that bring joy to anybody else? Isn't that like, yeah, that's my mission statement. Wherever I go, persecution, affliction awaits. This is good. You know, Paul, Paul wasn't a masochist. He didn't go out looking for, for suffering for the sake of suffering. But he knew his mission. He knew what the Spirit had constrained him to do. And he set his face toward it, regardless of what would come. Like the Savior who walked before him, Jesus who set his face toward Jerusalem, it's the wording that's used in Luke 9, and then proceeds in this track that ultimately takes him to the cross for us. We could, without hyperbole, say that's the ultimate step of suffering so that we could have life. So now Paul is merely following in the footsteps of his Savior. Suffering and persecution may await, but I'm, I'm constrained. I'm going to pursue this. And so that helps us see what do we do when these sorts of misunderstandings arise, because they may arise in your life. Maybe they have arisen at points in your life. Maybe you're in the midst of something right now. I'm not sure what to do with this because I feel like God's given me a clear leading here but this voice over here is saying something else, and I'm not sure what to do. You see, what's interesting is, is the way the text explains it. The Spirit helped them see that persecution, that suffering awaited Paul. And these people around Paul who love him dearly interpret that to mean, Paul, you shouldn't go. As any well-meaning friend would do, right? Isn't that where most of us are? Their intentions were good. They said, Paul, don't go. We care about your ministry to us. You, you've impacted our hearts. You've impacted our lives through your example, through your teaching. If you go, if you die, we lose you. We lose the opportunity to partner together with you in ministry. We lose your, the things that you're doing. Don't go, Paul. And this misunderstanding comes up, and, and, and how does he handle it? Huh. Well, ultimately, he says, you're breaking my heart. Stop. This is the mission God's given me. 
And, and what's so interesting for us to see in that is good intentions can sometimes potentially derail a mission, can't they? You know, Paul stayed unswerving in that, but for so, for so many of us sometimes, the Lord's calling, that's hard. I don't know, that's hard. And then someone else comes along and says, yeah, that's not a very good decision. Do you know how much of a pay cut that's going to mean? Do you know how uncomfortable it's going to make your family? These are good intentioned things. I know that I've said them in places. That's a hard thing to step into. Would you really take your family to that place? Would you do that to, to, to whatever situation you find yourself in? But at the same time, God does some of the most powerful and impactful things in the world through the places of suffering he takes us, doesn't he? So if, if God's calling you to a part of the world to serve, to proclaim the gospel where suffering may await you, that's perfectly in line with how he works. If he's calling you to, to downsize so that you have more resources for ministry to support others, that's, that's how God works. If he's, if he's calling you to, to take a, a step in a different direction in your career so you have more time to invest in the ministry or to your family, that's the way that he works, even if it might make you culturally uncomfortable, socially uncomfortable. He calls you to open your home to the least of these, to the hurting in our world, to the orphan and the widow. It puts your comfort to the side to open your home. It can be hard. As foster parents, we know this. We've experienced the hard things of opening our home to kids from hard places. It's uncomfortable. It does things to our family. It does things to the dynamic in our home, to our kids. And those are things that we've seen the Lord work through. And you'll find the experience the same. As you embrace the hard things, God's going to work through them. So then the task for us in, together as God's church is to say, how are we encouraging each other in that? How are we not taking people away from the mission they're called to, but encouraging them toward it? Say, so yeah, that might be a hard place. I'm here. I'm supporting you. This is God's will as they come to, to conclude. This is God's will. May it be done. And whatever you need me to help with, I'm here. I'm giving over to this as well as your brother, as your sister in Christ. And that's where we see Paul go forward ultimately as he pursues his mission. And I pray it's what we can learn as well. The next segment, as they now make this last little leg of their journey to Jerusalem, they arrive. Paul finds a positive reception as he walks into the city, as he meets with these church leaders. We see it beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. I love, I love this initial reaction as Paul arrives because in the midst of this, this very, there's a lot, it's frenetic, this, this pace that's happening as things are, are going on in, in Acts 21. We have this pause and we're glorifying God for what he's done. We're glorifying God for the work that he's doing in the world. And you realize in that moment it's that reminder, at least it was for me this week, that, that sometimes we need to step back from this book because you and I, most of us could sit down and read through the book of Acts in about an hour, give or take. And the temptation when that happens is, is to forget that the things that happened in here transpired over a long period of time, 30 plus years. And, and so to realize that, that there's an unfolding of the work that God's doing. And so here's a, a spot to pause and in, in their case, look back over the, about the last decade, because that's the last significant meeting in Jerusalem when the Jerusalem Council was held, looking back over the, the past decade and seeing, wow, God is doing an amazing work. Churches are springing up. The gospel is going to the Jew and to the Gentile. People are coming to Jesus all over the place. And so they're glorifying God for that. They're, they're praising God for that. And there's this sense in which, at least to a degree, we're celebrating this unity in the midst of the diversity. And then, just as soon as we celebrate that, we realize because there's diversity, there's also misunderstandings. We see this pattern throughout these different segments. There's some sort of misunderstanding that arises each time. In this case, it's, it's, it has to do with Paul and how he's being misunderstood by the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So we have to attempt to clarify this misunderstanding. Here's the problem. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem have been saying that Paul is teaching Jewish converts, especially in these Gentile areas, teaching Jewish converts to essentially abandon their, their Jewish heritage, including the traditions and circumcision. And this is, of course, a real problem now for Paul because he's back in Jerusalem. And they're saying people are going to hear that you're here. They're going to see you. They're going to see you teaching, hear you teaching. And, you know, this is going to be a real dent in your credibility when this is what people think about you now, that you're telling Jews to abandon their, their, their roots, their Jewishness. And so this is also a problem because the mood in Jerusalem overall right now, historically, is really tense. The Jews are, are very mindful of anything that may take away from their ability to live out the, the traditions that they uphold. The atmosphere is, is tense, understandably so. And so, hey, Paul, we don't want you to be misunderstood. We want to bring some clarification here. So here's a, an agreement, here's a plan, I guess, that we have. Would you agree with us on this and go forward with it? And the reason Paul does, the reason Paul goes right along with it is because he's got this, this commitment to the gospel. His heart is ultimately for the gospel. 
And that's what the significant takeaway for us in, in this is, is because all of a sudden these things are peripheral things. They're secondary things as long as the heart of the gospel's maintained. Listen, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you, as a human being, stand as, as a sinful person condemned by God under his wrath. Doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, but same thing, Jesus Christ came to die, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for that sin, to make things right between you and God. He rose to life to conquer death in the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of God, where he rules over all people. And so that's the heart of the gospel, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. If you've adhered to that, if that's what you believe, it's by faith in Jesus Christ and his grace alone that you're saved, then all this other stuff is peripheral. So yeah, what's the plan? Let's go with it. That's how Paul operated, and he's going to use that to, to, to bring some clarity to this misunderstanding. You know, Paul really, I think 1 Corinthians is this great place that shows how he lived this, how he taught this. And there's some valuable lessons for us, really briefly. You know, first in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about, uh, were you, were you a were you circumcised when you were called? Don't become uncircumcised. Were you uncircumcised when you were called? Don't, don't go become circumcised. What matters is that you obey the call of the gospel. That's what matters. In chapter 8, he talks about this, the importance of not letting the freedom in those things, the freedom that you have, become a stumbling block for someone else. Don't let the freedom that you have cause someone else to stumble. And then how does Paul practice this? How does he live this out? In chapter 9, he explains, verses 20 to 23. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. He was a Jew, remember? And so he lived like one. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Again, Paul's commitment is to not compromise the gospel for the sake of the gospel. Beyond that, he's not going to tell Jews to quit being Jews or tell Gentiles that they now have to be Jews. We're under grace, which means it's grace to be free from the law in that sense of following the traditions or grace to be free to exercise that. If that's who you are. And so Paul goes along with this suggestion, and we see that uh, through it, he's going to communicate. There's nothing to these rumors. Paul lives as one who's in observance to the law. And uh, the way that they're doing this is by, he's aligning himself with these four guys who are undergoing what looks like a Nazarite vow, the conclusion of a Nazarite vow, you shave your head, make a sacrifice. And uh, for Paul, he's not been there long enough to do that. It was a minimum of 30 days. But it's his is uh, some sort of a purification vow, purification rite. So he goes in and, and he goes, and, th and that would make sense because he's a Jew who's been out in Gentile lands. And so for them to come back and undergo this purification ritual took about seven days, seven to eight days. And, um, and so he's doing that. He's in and out of the temple coming in for these various segments along the way and, and paying the way for these other four to send the message, yeah, I'm, this is my Jewishness. I haven't abandoned it. 
and uh, all things are going well, and then we, we, hit, we hit this, this big speed bump, and uh, the tables are really quickly going to turn. It's the final segment that we see, beginning in verse 27. Paul's, Paul experiences this turning of the tables. I'm going to read through verse 36. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the, in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Next week, we'll see what happens next, because that's a rather abrupt ending, isn't it? But here, again, Paul's visit's going so smoothly, and then this, this, this sudden change in the atmosphere in Jerusalem. And if you've been alert to the biblical storyline in recent history, there's, there's been a pattern of false accusations. Jesus Christ falsely accused before the high priest, and it ultimately led to his, his crucifixion. Stephen, falsely accused. People were planted, you know, to bring these false allegations against Stephen, falsely accused, stoned to death. And those are a couple notable ones, and we've seen it throughout the church. James is gone, and, and others who've been martyred and, and killed. Paul, now experiencing the same thing, and the irony is that they're accusing him of defiling the temple, when in fact he's there for purification. How would he be defiling the temple? Well, they say that he's brought some Gentile into the temple with him, which is a really serious thing for a Jew to have done. But the problem is there's really no truth to it. Paul's here to build his credibility to, to show that he's being purified. That's the last thing that would be on his mind. And they're saying that they saw him with this, this Greek, this Trophimus. It was in the city. It wasn't in the temple. But because Paul had been coming in and out of the temple with different people, these, these four people in the vow, somehow his misunderstanding has arisen and we have a problem. And, uh, and this is a big problem because the Roman government didn't give the right to exercise capital punishment away very much. They liked to keep that for themselves. But in a few cases, and they were revolved around temple worship and some of the major temple centers in, in, in the empire, they gave that right to the temple leaders. So in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple leaders had the right to put to death somebody who, as a Gentile, came into the courts, the Jewish, the inner courts of the temple. So this is a serious problem. And regardless of whether or not it's true, at this point, the crowd has bought into it, and they've, they've dragged Paul out of the temple. They've closed the gates. They're beating him. 
and his death would be imminent were it not for a timely intervention by the Roman soldiers, Roman legion. And they come in, they pull him away, they get things to quiet down because, because they're, they're afraid that something is going to go, go haywire. This is a riot. And, and what's, what I love about this whole thing is that they came to Paul's rescue without realizing that's what they were doing. Because God sent them to rescue Paul. And, and see, the reason that, what was the first thing that they did when they, when they got Paul? They arrested him. They didn't say, look at that poor innocent man being beaten by all those people. They said, this guy must be the ringleader. Let's get him. So they arrested him. They pulled him away, which means he's no longer in the hands of the Jews, the Jewish leaders here. They can't, they can't exercise judgment on him right now. So in a sense, he's safe. And as the truth starts to come out, they realize, oh, I don't even know why. What, what's the problem? What did this guy do? He's, he's a Roman citizen. He, he's a Jew. He, what's, what's the deal? And we're going to see that come out more. But the point is God used all this to rescue him. Even though that the people being used didn't realize that was their role. Isn't that how God works? And as it all happens, we now enter into, to bring us back to what we've been talking about in the whole course of this message, the mission for Paul. The mission now takes a new course. This is the next chapter in the mission that God has called him to. And one of the points in that is that we, we can't write the chapter before it gets here. You don't know what the next chapter in your mission looks like. But your decision, your willingness to be obedient to, to the mission now will determine what the next chapter looks like. For Paul, this is the chapter that we're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts in. It's Paul in chains. Paul the prisoner. We're going to see that now throughout the book of Acts, the rest of it. And it was a significant chapter in his, his ministry and his mission, wasn't it? How many of you have been impacted by, by the things that Paul wrote when he was in chains? Do you know what those things are? I mean, do, do, do you realize the significance of those letters that he wrote to the Ephesian church, the Philippians, the Colossians, to Philemon? These letters that he wrote in chains to encourage the church then that encourages the church today. How many lives have been impacted by his ministry in chains? Yes, he was a prisoner of Rome, but as he would write, I'm, I'm the prisoner, I'm a prisoner for Christ. That was his mission and he embraced it and he continued to pursue it. It's interesting because the last thing that the text says as we looked at today, we'll pick up again next week. The last thing we saw was the, the crowds shouting, they're shouting away with him, away with him. And it's the same cry that his Savior heard as he was being taken away to be crucified. When Christ's mission becomes our mission, it brings things into focus. When we realize the hardship that we're experiencing is, is the road that our Savior walked before us, God, may you be glorified through this hardship, through this difficulty, through this suffering, through this persecution. That's how Paul lived, and it's the calling for each one of us as well. So what? Again, keeping in mind, and if you didn't get a chance, listen, listen to the last week. 
ties together then and brings this into more focus. Where is your pursuit of Christ's mission for your life taking you? Where is your pursuit of that mission taking you? In the short haul, in the long haul? And, and how do you deal with the hard places that it may take you? In fact, I'd say that if you're being obedient to it, it will take you. I don't know of anybody who's pursued the mission that Christ's given them and not experienced hardship along the way. So how do you prepare yourself for that? Both understanding what is true, what he said is true, and by surrounding yourself with people who will support you in that. And to turn that around then, how are we, how are we encouraging others around us in that pursuit of the mission? Because there are people around you who are making hard decisions right now. And they're not sure what to do because they think this is true, but this is hard. And so if I hear counsel that says, no, the Lord may be leading you here instead, I might want to go there. Because <laughs> it sounds better. To say, how, how are we encouraging each other in this? How are we supporting each other? How are we rallying up, in a sense, uh, as we're going into battle, joining arms, and stepping forward to the trenches. Okay? Those are the things that we can think about. And I'm, God, I, I'm going to ask you to help with that right now. Because I don't, I don't know what that is for each one of us, but I know it's something because you've called each one of us to a mission for you. And it looks different. And some of the things that people right now are even experiencing, they're in the midst of it right now. It's hard and there are Probably some who are looking for a way out when in fact you're saying, stay the course. This is the mission. There are others of us who confess we're all too quick to look for the, the easy way out to avoid the hard things. God, there are hard things that are in store for us. And as I say that, it doesn't, I don't like saying that. I don't like getting up here and reminding all of us of that. What a note to leave on. So God, remind us that through those things you can make yourself look great. You can magnify yourself. You can make your name be exalted through us as we step into those hard things. Give us what we need to do it in the midst of the angst, in the midst of the concern and the worry. Overcome that with your truth and overcome that with encouragement from one another as we step into that together. We praise you that you've called us to be on a mission with you. You've entrusted that to us and that you're using us for that to make you known. We celebrate that together in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand. From Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling as you pursue the mission that's in front of you, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.